Dotnet Rocks, episode 1041, with guest Ben Watson. Recorded Tuesday, September 16th, 2014. Dun, da, 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 da. It's Carl and Richard for .NET Rocks. Another hour of, well, whatever it is we do on this stupid show. I think it's .NET goodness, my friend. I really do. All right. <laughs> call, it, call it what you will. I will. I call it a day's work. That's yep. what I call it. Well, we're always exploring ideas, and sometimes they surprise us, but that's what I like. Yep, absolutely. This uh, should prove to be a good show. Uh, ben Watson is here. He'll be up in just a minute talking about performance. But first, we got a few things to take care of, such as the crazy music for a little thing we call Better Know a Framework. Oh, yeah. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, you know what this is, but I don't think a lot of people do. Oh. I was pleasantly surprised to learn about this last week. And uh, this is a site at Microsoft where there's a lot of information in video form, mm -hmm. including some that uh, my friend Richard Campbell has done. It's Microsoft Virtual Academy. Oh, yeah. MicrosoftVirtualAcademy.com. Nice. And it's not just developer stuff. It's There's Windows, Dynamics, Server, System Center, SQL Server, Office 365, SharePoint. I mean, there's basically videos on everything Microsoft here. Yeah, they've been making tons of content for a long time, actually. The series that I was involved in, and it's one of the reasons they asked me to, to be involved, was uh, this whole bit on open source. Yeah. So they sort of, you know, these videos seem to last forever. And most of the presentations are done by developer evangelists, technical evangelists, those sorts of things. But in this particular case, we were going to do a, a set of shows, I think it was seven or eight of them, uh, 20 minutes to 40 minutes long, with various people who are deeply involved in open source in various capacities inside of, of Microsoft and some outside. Phil Hack was involved as well. And what I like about it is that it runs the gamut from stuff like that yeah. to absolute beginner stuff, which I love. Yeah, how to get set up with Studio, yeah. you know, getting right from the beginning on it. Fundamentals courses. And uh, you don't see those everywhere. And they, they tend to be um, inconsistent. But I like that they're all together in one place here. And lots of names and faces that you recognize, guys like Galloway and yep. uh, Brady Gaster, like good folks. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the uh, the videos look great. Um, as I said, the the jump starts are awesome for people who want to get started. So I like sending people here who uh, who are just getting started with .NET, and I also like sending people here for particular um, reasons. You know, if they're if they're working in other technologies. And they want some hardcore stuff to chew on. It's there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, good find, dude. Yeah. And like I say, it's not a find, really. But I just it occurred to me we never talked about it on the yeah. show, and you brought it up uh, in yesterday's show. And I thought, yep, this is a good thing to talk about. Yep, just something to mention. Yep. There's lots of content out there. You just got to go out and look at it, and yep. it's well worth your time to uh, to catch up and on. Sometimes things. it can be hard to find if you're just. Google banging or, God forbid, just trying to navigate around Microsoft's website to find yeah. things. Yeah. All right. Who's talking to us, Richard? Hey, grabbed a comment off of show 1035, the one we did very recently with Kathleen Dollard when we talked about, about Roslyn. Yep. Which, you know, at some point that that code name's going to go away. It's yeah. just going to be called C Sharp. C Sharp you know? 6. <laughs> yeah. It's just going to be C Sharp. Yeah. But Phil Ritchie wrote a great comment. He says, uh, what an awesome show, guys. I work in the languages services industry, hmm. translating applications and technical documentation from one geographic language to another. Yeah. Challenge for us include machine translation, machine to text, and automatically checking that a translation is both fluent and accurately conveys the meaning and intent of the original. Yeah. And yes, I like to program using high-level abstractions to increase my productivity, but the low-level quote, com size stuff goes into parsers, tokenizers, and compilers that is so exciting and interesting. Mm -hmm. Kathleen's Pluralsight course on metaprogramming is two hours well spent, and I'm looking forward to her C-sharp videos. Applications that can harness, visualize, and reason over languages, both geographic, domain-specific, procedural, functional, whatever, using the latent power of semantics and the linked data is and will continue to transform how we build applications and interact with machines. 
Today's commute was a joy. Mm, awesome. Ah, you know, I guess we we moved somebody today, Carl. <laughs> well, Kathleen in general. Yeah, in that's particular. really Kathleen. She She's like that. You know, you get really yeah. excited when you hear her do her thing. Sure. I'm with you, Phil. It's exciting times. And you've got a cool job. That's not easy to do. I, one of these days, maybe you could come and talk to us about what it takes to actually translate those geographic languages from one form to another well. Mm -hmm. That's not easy. Text-to-speech is one thing, but one language to another... And we're getting close to that universal translator, I think. Star yeah. Trek. Yeah, technology's getting close. So, Phil, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, iOS, and Android. And that brings us to Ben Watson. Since joining Microsoft in 2008, Ben has worked on the Bing platform team where he was instrumental in building one of the world's leading .NET-based high-performance server applications. This app handles high-volume, low-latency requests across thousands of machines for millions of customers. Most recently, his efforts have focused particularly on performance measurement and improvement. A recognized expert on .NET performance, he is the author of the books Writing High-Performance.NET Code and C-Sharp 4.0 How-To. In his spare time, he enjoys geocaching in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, photography, music, books of all kinds, and spending time with his family. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here with you. It's great for it's great to have you, and uh, especially somebody who's been there from the beginning of a project like Bing, which is undoubtedly a, a huge a huge undertaking. And uh, and your your forte seems to be performance, and I I can. Uh, you know, it just makes it very obvious to me that you know a thing or two about optimization, you know, when you're uh, dealing with that kind of scale. Well, yeah, I know a thing or two. There's others who know more than that. But, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely experience hard-earned over the last few years. A uh, lot of great lessons uh, just came together as we, you know, built this new system. I was there since the Bing brand was launched. Before that, we mm -hmm. were a struggling site, uh, Live.com. I don't know if anybody remembers that oh, anymore, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, we were there. <laughs> yeah. Since then, it's really grown by leaps and bounds. It's really amazing to see the progress we continue to make each day, and. Mm. Uh, yeah, for the last uh, three or four years, .NET has been a really big part of that, and uh, especially in my life. And, I mean, in one sense, you think, hey, it's a Microsoft property, so of course it's .NET, but... <laughs> You'd be surprised. I mean, it's... That's right. Uh, Bing, I think, in, in particular, is very different than the rest of Microsoft. I think the rest of Microsoft, in some ways, is catching up. And of course, we have ways to improve, too. But, hmm. you know, everybody can choose their technologies. And once you build a platform, you know, Live.com existed for many years, and you have all this code, you can't just throw it away and start over willy-nilly. Mm -hmm. It's, it's got to be uh, well-reasoned. So, um, you know, we don't hear about uh, .NET performance all that much anymore. Probably, I mean, I, I want to know why you think that is, but um, I think I tend to think that since 64-bit operating systems have greatly expanded the amount of memory that we have access to, and you know, we're we're certainly not as worried about memory leaks as much anymore because you know, if we're running under IIS anyway, we can recycle and yeah. do all of that stuff. That's sort of makes those problems go away and maybe an ugly way, but they do. And so why do you think that, first of all, am I right? Do you think that there's people just aren't thinking about it that much anymore? Yeah, I, I do think you're totally right. It's, you know, it's a consequence of the just incredible hardware we have and the advances in the operating system. It's like, yeah, we can have 64 gigs of memory on our machine. What do I care about mm. my performance? How much memory I allocate? Yeah. But, I mean, the thing is, you can always build an app bigger than your machine. Right. And, sure. you know... Definitely, we do that in Bing, and plenty of other places do that as well. I know the .NET team knows of, of plenty of teams that are always pushing these boundaries. But then, it, I, I don't ever think it's a good attitude just to say, well, ah, the machine's going to take care of it. Right. I, don't have to, I don't have to do any hard work at all. I'll yeah. just rely on you know those, those smart CLR programmers to handle everything. And it's I, I think you lose a lot. You know, aside from professional pride, you know, 
how much better could your program be? How many fewer resources could you use? And I also uh, think that it's a lot of it depends on the the scale at which your app is running. I mean, how many absolutely. users do you have? If you've got a you know ten users an hour or ten sessions an hour, you're not so worried about it. But if you're Bing, yeah, now you do have to worry about it. And also, you know, we're think we're you know along comes things like Node and and Go and and all of these really fast uh, alternatives to using IIS. And, uh, then, then it does, then the spotlight does shift back to performance, especially under those high load situations, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the performance of your system directly translates into money and, you know, how much money is that? Well, you know, if it's just a small little UI utility that somebody paid $3.99 for, maybe it doesn't matter so much, but if you're running in a data center and you're running on more than one machine, right. Well, you you want to make sure you're not wasting your your CPU, your memory, your bandwidth, your disk, all of that. Yep, it can really be worth it. So, where do we start in terms of uh, and and I we'll talk about your book and and I want to talk about that at the end. But yeah, where what is the who does the book appeal to and and why uh and what categories can we break down performance into? So I I, I think the book does appeal to. To somebody, I don't, not necessarily a novice, but uh, somebody who has some experience and has run into issues with performance, mm-hmm. uh, particularly around memory usage mm-hmm. or CPU usage or just weird things that they can't get beyond. Um, the first thing that I always start with when I'm talking to people is, is your memory. It's your garbage collection performance. Because that's the thing I think that scares people. That's the thing that scared a lot of people away from .NET for many years. Right. It's like, oh, this, there's this garbage collector. It's non-deterministic. I can't control when it's going to run. Right. So how can I control the performance of my program if I'm just always worrying about, you know, it getting interrupted every few seconds and pausing for a few hundred milliseconds and, and then continuing? And so the first thing you really have to to get a handle on is your memory allocation, just the patterns you're using, how much mm. and i would say it's even more important than you know raw cpu a lot of the other stuff we typically go to um so yeah that's where i would start is, so the, you, is you, the memory under you put memory in the category of performance i mean ultimately it does come down to that because if you run out of memory you're going to slow down but uh yeah i i think in .NET in particular memory allocations means more garbage collections yeah and then certain patterns encourage more garbage collections. Mm. And so there's, you know, yeah, there's abuse of rules. strings, for example. Yeah, that's a really big one. Um, I, I, if, if I could have my way, I would just, no, no string processing. You just can't do it. Treat it like an opaque blob. Use string builders everywhere? <laughs> yeah, it's more complicated than that. There's, I, I think it's an age old argument between, you know, whether I use string concatenation or string builders. And what I try and get across is understanding the fundamentals. So Mm. what's going on Mm. underneath? And what it comes down to is memory allocations. If you have an unbounded loop where you're continuing to concatenate strings, well, each concatenation translates into a memory allocation. That's the thing you want to avoid. Now, you can still do that pattern with a string builder. It's just a little bit more complicated. The advantage of a string builder is you can pre-allocate the buffer. Mm. Uh, you can format within the buffer. There's a bunch of things that reduce those allocations, and then you just have a single allocation at the end when you convert it to a string. And so I think people need to understand not the do I always choose string builder over string. They need to understand what's going on and why so that they can right. make the most intelligent decision in that specific circumstance. And, and people don't want to do that, right? Like people want hard and fast rules. They do, don't they? <laughs> yeah, and, the, and just tell me the right way, man. Yeah. Tell me the right way. Always do this, never do that. That's what right. people seem to gravitate toward. And and you know what? It, that might be fine. It, it, depending on the level of performance you expect out of your application, right? You you can totally get by on that. But and and the prince the principle is that. The more performance you expect out of your system, the more you have to understand the fundamentals and what's going on at yeah. every layer below your code. Agreed. Yeah. 
And so that's, I mean, that's what I'm trying to convey in the book is, is these .NET fundamentals, because you read, there's a lot of places on the internet, you can go and find, you know, ASP.NET performance, and you're going to be talking about caching and, and server side and client side and all of these things. I don't touch any of that. That's its own specific area. And then there's SQL server performance, and I don't touch any of that. It's so, really the fundamentals of .NET. So what I get when I read fundam- when I when I read books on the fundamentals of .NET, you know, and guys like Don Box um, about you know how it works, I find that oh, I probably shouldn't use that. Well, what's the alternative? And there is none, right? You know, yeah, so it comes yeah. down to uh, trying to have a different architecture or just not using the the technology that you thought you were going to use. Um, you know, would do you, do do you offer alternative? Uh, strategies for using, say, reflection or, or other things. Yeah, that's um, that's the thing. The great thing about .NET is there's so much code provided for you. Mm. It's it's really a robust framework. Even if you're just limiting yourself to the BCL and the FCL, the framework class library, there's just so much there you can use. But what you do have to understand is that's very general purpose. It has to work for every program in every situation. Mm. And it may not always be well-suited for your particular situation, especially if you need to get those last few milliseconds of performance. And so, yeah, for something like reflection, um, yeah, if you're doing reflection once or twice, it doesn't matter. Just just go for it. But if you're doing it a lot, if you have a lot of dynamic code invocation, you need to start looking at things like emitting code and and generating stuff that can do the same thing that the reflection was doing but in a much more efficient manner that's that's something we do uh, yeah but yeah there's uh, i mean so there's strings like what's the alternative to string i don't know if you could reasonably come up with one and still interact with you know the rest of the framework right so there are some, you have to have a string at some yeah, time if you're dealing with text point. but but there right. is the the string builder for concatenation, and yeah. and that's you know I I don't see any downside to using the string builder. So I, you know, we were talking about hard and fast rules that that can be one that you could probably use if you're going to do string concatenation, don't you think? I mean, is there any downside to using the string builder? I don't think there's a downside there. You could get into a pattern where if if the pattern of strings that you're concatenating leads to the string builder reallocating its internal buffer just like you do for a string concatenation, mm. then it's you haven't really gained anything, but you might not have lost anything either. Right. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, but so there's the downside's small, but you may not be actually beneficial. I guess the downside is you're it's, writing longer code. It is pretty easy to concatenate strings by hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and really, I mean, what's the most fundamental rule of performance optimization? It's measure. Yeah, you have to right. measure. Right. And, and and that's one of the things I really try to get across to people I speak to is don't just do the simple profile of of where your CPU is going. That's only half the story. You got to profile where your memory allocations are happening mm. because that's direct overhead for the garbage collector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there a way to measure how much IL this particular line of code generated? You know, if I take, if I use this code versus that code, is there an easy way while I'm trying to make that decision? Oh, this one generated 50,000 IL <laughs> and this one. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're getting something to something that's really at the uh, heart of .net and I would say one of the few cons of using .net is that you can hide so much code. Oh, yes, yeah. Behind what you behind one line. And it's not always obvious, you know, you can make a really pretty link statement mm. that runs really slowly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that now you're talking arguably the most abstracted point in the language possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's beautiful and it and it has its place and there's nothing wrong with using it, but you have to be aware of what is is going on. What's the translation to the machine because that's where your performance is going. You know, how many instructions does it take? How many allocations is it doing? The more allocations it's going to do, the the more GC you're going to have, which means the more your program is going to be interrupted and the slower it's going to run. There are ways to to find out how much IL is generated. You can certainly decompile a program and see the IL. Mm-hmm. You can take it a step further and you can see how many, how, I don't know if you can see how many native instructions. Certainly you could decompile it further and look at the assembly. The tool that I like to use for 
almost everything in in measuring .NET performance is a little tool called Perfview. Yep. And uh, it's it's a great little thing, but it can monitor the ETW events that get generated when things are being jitted, mm-hmm. and it will show you. You know, I just jitted this method. I jitted, jitted method foo. It took fifteen point nine milliseconds. It the IL size was thirty two. The native size was three hundred and forty. Right. And so you can do it do it at the method level quite easily. And that, of course, that brings up the whole thing about jitting because the last time I looked, there's a new version of .NET coming that's going to remove the jit aspect. Mm. Yeah. So th- I mean, there's a couple there's a couple interesting things with that. Um, the next version of the JIT is, I think it, the code name is pronounced Ryujit. And that's just a new version of the JIT, especially for 64-bit processors, which yep. is great. And uh, in our measurements, we've seen it take what, less than 50% of the time to JIT. Wow. And theoretically, the code quality is much better. That's a little bit harder to measure, but uh, it's supposed to be much better. Um, the really exciting stuff, though, is the .NET native where there is no JIT. Yeah, right. True, and yeah, compiled completely to native. Just, just compile it to native. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, it's it's kind of limited right now, but uh, I have high hopes <laughs> for the future where everybody can use this for whatever platform they're using. Right. But yeah, that's but exciting it, stuff. But it's it featured sure side. But, you know, I mean, I built a lot of high-performance websites, and while you certainly get burned by garbage collection ultimately because of coding behaviors, you would have, I don't, I think that's still less net time than you would have paid if you were removing memory on the fly anyway. Like, I feel like people who complain that garbage collecting is a mistake just have not understood what it's costing them to not garbage collect. Right. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that I've run up against talking to some people is they think, well, you know, in native code, I can just directly control it. There is no garbage collector. And it's like, well, yeah, but in native mode, you can, you can, you can, uh, you can have memory leaks too. You, you can have memory leaks. You can also lock for a lot longer on that heap. Yep. And that's, that is very hard to diagnose unless you are used to it. The, the time spent allocating memory is much higher than most people think. And in .NET, the inverse is true. You've made memory allocation almost free. It is barely more than a pointer increment. Yeah, in to mo- the point where people forget cases. that it used to cost something. It used to cost, and it still does. And and we still see that all the time. And then in, in native code, you have to go through all these fancy things. You've got to have different allocators. You've, you have to allocate huge buffers and then subdivide them. You you have to do a lot more intense management of your process once you start getting that complicated. Sure. Where in, in .NET, it moves that cost to the end. And yeah, there's always a trade-off. Hey, but, Richard, did we talk about .NET Native on the show? I don't think we really have yet because, of course, it's not a shipping technology. It's just right. been mentioned at Build, essentially. Right. But it really is interesting. I mean, I'm looking at the website now, and we'll provide a link to it. But it compiles C-sharp to native machine code that performs like C++. So um, popular Windows Store apps start up 60% faster and use 15 to 20% less memory when compiled with .NET Native. Interesting. Yeah, that that the cool thing about .NET Native is it's using the Visual C++ uh, optimizer. Wow. So the C-sharp gets compiled into the same format that the optimizer understands. And so you, you get all of the... I mean, the C++ compiler is... That's world class. That's that's a best in class compiler. Right. So you get a lot of a lot of great goodness from that. Just beyond having, you know, native code running. Yeah, and it's just an you know, the decisions around garbage collection, jitting, and so forth. These are decisions that were made in the late nineties. Mm. Yeah. You know, at the beginning <laughs> of .NET, and now you know, fifteen, seventeen years later, the hardware's different. Many more yeah. cores. Epic amounts of memory. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, right. it's a challenge to live with these decisions. And at the same time, it's like for the average run of the mill app, these aren't conversations you need to have anymore. Garbage collection yeah. doesn't even show up on the radar. Yeah. yeah, that's true. It really is for when you need that last bit of performance. Right. I mean, one of the things I, I, I say in my book is like, you know, if your algorithms are bad, reading this book 
your algorithms are still going to be bad. <laughs> you, you can <laughs> optimize crap all you want, but it's still it's, crap. Exactly. This, is, this crap. is when you really need the ultimate performance. And I think my tendency, and I think it's most people's tendencies, if, if my code's running slowly, it's my code's fault. N- not the optimizer, not JIT, not garbage collection. Right. Yeah, and, I, and that's interesting because... When I've talked to some people, the attitude, at least a few years ago, yeah, was always, "Oh, I don't want to move to .NET because .NET makes my code slow." It's like, well, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> your code is slow. <laughs> it just might be more obvious and measurable under .NET. Could be PebCac. Yeah, <laughs> just saying. You can usually yeah. count on that. Yeah, yeah, it's and and I think that's true nine out of ten times. You know the. The, the lesson is just because you are really good at optimizing or the compiler is good at optimizing right. your, your native code doesn't mean that all of those tricks translate directly to a managed system. Mm. Right. You've got to learn new skills, new techniques. You have to understand you know, the .NET framework. That's what the framework is doing. It's providing services to you. And you want to code to that. You don't want to fight against that, which is something we see a lot of people do. Don't fight the CLR. Figure out the CLR's rules and then follow them, and you'll have much greater success. Do you find that people who are used to developing in other languages that come to .NET, maybe C++ or or Java or maybe even a higher-level Ruby or anything like that, they they tend to bring their habits, their performance habits with them? Yeah, I, I have seen that. A little less now in the last few years because I think, uh, at least in, from my perspective, .NET is much more popular and and a large part of that is because we standardized on it. But the the most amusing one is, is the finalizer pattern. Right. It's, well, you know, I had this tilde squiggly thing in C++. I must need it in .NET. And it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing at all. Mm. And so, I, I mean, years ago, I was going through lots of code reviews and saying, why do you have a finalizer here? You don't need this. You'd act, in fact, it's actually harmful to your right. program's performance to have this. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, finalizers are great, but you should only use them if you need them. And then they should never be called. You always have to use the dispose pattern. That's with right. Them. You, you, and, you shouldn't. If you're disposing ahead of time, you don't need a finalizer. And finalizers run on a low-priority background thread. So that's yeah. that's going to take that long to take those resources out. Yeah, exactly. And you know, allocating an object that has a finalizer is a bit slower. So you've got that upfront cost. Even if the finalizer never actually runs because you've disposed it, you're still taking more time to allocate it. And then adding a finalizer basically guarantees that that memory is going to stick around longer. So you've got mm. more memory pressure. You've got more GCs. The GCs are going to take longer. Yeah. Right. And in, yeah. and in the end, and I found this, and all, most of my performance streaming work has been on websites. You mess with the GC, you make the situation worse every time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. The, the, the GC's instincts on when to collect are very, very good. What you're trying to do is build a system where it never gets to a panic GC, where it's yeah. never forced to do that. And, and writing your software the right way does that, and it will always garbage collect better than you could. Yeah, and that and that's the thing we we've seen is you know if if I see GC collect sprinkled throughout your code without a really good reason, chances are you're trying to address the symptom of the real problem. And yes. The real problem is you've got memory that's being held on too long, so it gets promoted from Gen zero all the way up to Gen two. Mm-hmm. You're making large object allocations, which always go to Gen two and require a full GC to clean up. You do you have bad patterns, and you think oh these bad patterns are causing bad GC performance, I better just collect more frequently to make sure it gets rid of it more frequently. Right. That's that's not the way to attack it in most cases. Doctors bury their mistakes, programmers cover them in more code. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My favorite thing to do is delete code. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially. You know what, but it doesn't get deleted first, right? It gets commented first. And oh, then yeah. after a while you're like, hey, why am I why get rid of that? Yeah. Yeah. It's working. Why is that fine. still there? Why is that yeah. still there? Yeah. So <laughs> Um, another thing that you, I heard you mention dynamic code. So if you're, if you're doing any kind of DLR stuff and, you know, dynamically adding members to objects and things like that, is that going to be a performance hit or more something we should even pay attention to? 
Yeah, I think if you're using DLR, you shouldn't be too concerned about performance, at least not in this, you know, ultra machine level, last mm. millisecond way. And you can verify this. If you compile a very simple example, uh, just a main function with two variables, add them together, print out the result. Yeah. Now change those ints to dynamic. Then take a look at the IL that's generated from that and compare it to the IL from the other one. Right. It's totally different. You've got way more CPU usage, of course, because it's got to figure out types and, and all these bindings. But then you've also got a lot more memory allocation. And it's dynamic is great. And it's a good thing we have it because it enables so many more scenarios. But it's not, uh, you are going to lose a bunch of performance using it. Okay. Now, but like I said, but it's one of those things end, that you, you can use measure. in moderation, right? Exactly. You want to use it for where it's appropriate and then measure if it's not in the inner loop of your program and it's not critical to your overall performance, go crazy. <laughs> hey, uh, this is a good time to stop and tell people that this point in the show, we usually do a joke and a giveaway and stuff, but there is no major sponsor for this show. So, you know, we do have a couple of shows per year left where we don't have stuff to give away, but I, I feel like I got to ask the question anyway. You know, Ben, we, we have this uh, club where uh, the fan club where we give away uh, sponsor products in every show. And every December, we give away $5,000 to one member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And we also ask our guests in every show, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, Ben, what would you buy? Ooh. That's really tough. Do Legos count as technology? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be really hard. I, I'm kind of a Lego. Especially geek, Legos yeah. with blinky lights. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm more Mind of the storms. Model. Yeah, I love Mindstorm. I'm more of the model building type, but I, I would go crazy for Lego. Uh, if Five not grand Le worth of Lego is a lot of Lego, dude. Yeah. You know, you'd have to build a room for it first. You know what I'm saying? You can't just buy. Where are you going to put those? In the living room? I well, I, I have more Lego than that already. <laughs> oh, you have a Lego room? You have a Lego room? I don't at the moment, but uh, it, it is enough Lego for a Lego room someday. <laughs> wow. Your but kids it, must it, be really happy about that. Oh, no, my daughter goes crazy. We, we have a lot of fun. She's just getting to the age where we can build Lego. Nice. So nice. Now, how, how does your Lego relationship fit with something like, say, Minecraft? I've never got into Minecraft. Well, it's um, going to be a Microsoft product. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in it now. But yeah, every time I mention Lego to somebody, they, they're like, oh, you must play Minecraft. And it's like, I, I, I haven't yeah. been into the game since college, but this keeps coming up. So I need to look into this a little bit more. I mean, my, yeah, they keep calling Minecraft digital Lego. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, taps the, it taps the same thing, right? It's the yeah. urge to create. The urge to, make to create. Something exactly. Cool. And uh, to me, I like building that a little bit more in physical form, and I, you can work with it a little bit more. It's kind of a combination be between CAD and modeling clay. I can make anything, but it's still there right in front of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to get into Minecraft a bit more. Well, absolutely, for sure. Um, leaping back into this thing, what is your go-to strategy for comprehensive instrumentation? Are you a, a method profiler type, or what do you like to do? So, I rely very heavily on ETW events. Right. And just it, defining our own, but I think more importantly, learning what the ETW events already are there in the system, and then using those to profile. I mean, that's what CPU and memory profiling already uses. Mm. Yeah. But, but it's also, I think, an area that's not that well known. It's not, and it's really unfortunate. And that's that's something I really am trying to push on people is like, you got to use this because ETW is awesome. Both Windows and .NET publish so many ETW events that describe almost every aspect of the system. Right. And you can then define your own to say whatever you want, and then... You can merge those two. Those those streams of events come together, and you can do. I mean, you could do simple profiling, and they just show up in a list, and you can see aspects of your performance. Or you can build automated analysis tools that take 
what your program was doing right before a GC happened, right? for example. And no, you, because Windows is already capturing all this stuff. Exactly. It just captures it. It just needs somebody listening, and you can just dump it to a file, and you can do whatever you want with it. It's an amazing stream of information. Now, just suppose for me, event tracing against your sort of traditional logging. <laughs> do you do both? It's, I, I don't. I rely on just event tracing, where okay. every every event is strongly typed. I do, I mean, some of my systems have, I don't. They might be approaching a thousand discrete events by now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, some of those events are just going to have a string with a message, and there's no. It's not, you know, structured data. But most events do contain some kind of structured data, mm-hmm. which then allows you to automate the processing a lot more. So I yeah I don't use logging so much ever since I've gotten on the ETW bandwagon because the, I mean the thing you can do with ETW is you can the stream by default just goes into the operating system and it'll disappear into the ether unless you listen for it right but mm-hmm. but once you listen to it well you can pipe that to the console you can pipe it to a log file you can do whatever you want with it it's just data well, heck if you're in a big in. organization operations manager will pick it up and you can use yeah. the system diagnostics namespace to do exactly. stuff with it as well yep you yeah. can do you can do whatever you want so yeah i don't i don't use any other logging libraries besides etw event tracing for windows by the way that's what that yes, is sorry. yeah <laughs> and i I've, and I've added links for folks who want to go take a look at this so, uh, uh, Kathleen Dollard who's where we read the the show yep. we read the comment about loves ETW wax is poetic about it but i think it's one of these areas that's just not known we first heard it's, about it from her uh on the dot rocks we did from dev teach yeah, yeah. the thi- and the thing with ETW with this event tracing it almost certainly has better performance than whatever logging library you're using yeah, yeah. In terms of overhead and and just yes. getting to the stuff, right? Like yep. the the how many log files does one person need? <laughs> oh, if I could show you the size of our logs. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and just scattered all over the place. Like yeah, I'm building these end tier web apps, and each layer is writing its own logs. I like, find the problem isn't yeah. writing the big logs; it's making sense of them. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. yeah. That's where the and real that- talent comes in. How do you make yeah. sense of those logs? Yeah, that's that's a really big issue. I mean, you, you can imagine how much data Bing or Google or any of these large applications generate. I mean, it's terabytes per day minimum. Mm. And, you know, with some kind of structured data like ETW or whatever other system you're using, that becomes very trivial. You put it in some central location and then you just build tools. That's actually a big part of my job right now is building tools to automatically analyze these events and provide summaries for us for other people to understand. People who don't necessarily understand the intricacies of .NET, they mm-hmm. might still want to know, you know, where is their code allocating memory? Where is it throwing exceptions? All of that can be determined automatically, you know, through ETW events. Cool. It's all there. You just got to figure it out. Just got to build some tools to do it. Absolutely. Um, in your book, you talk a lot about different free tools, and I know you've already mentioned I'll Spy, and I'm adding links as fast as you say things. Dude, <laughs> okay. People need to know about these. Yeah, things, great right? stuff. I, I love that we can come away with, hey, have you looked at this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Other favorite tools? Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, there are lots of great commercial tools, and I don't want to diss them. Sure. Uh, especially because Microsoft does own site licenses for a lot of them. A lot of people use them and they're great. But in my experience, for the kind of applications that I worked on, those tools break down. I don't know too many tools that can open a 20 gigabyte managed heap dump with hundreds Ouch. of millions of objects mm. <laughs> and make any sense of it or do anything other than crash. Well, especially <laughs> when you only nope. have 16 gigs of RAM in the first place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, uh, you know, we got really used to, to using. Uh, very simple tools. And so my go-to tools are one perfu. It's a very simple ETW event analyzer. And its magic is in the stack analysis portion, where it can take all of these events, group them by the common stacks, and let you fold and, and group and collapse them in so many different ways where you can quickly drill down into the problem areas in your code. And then it can do other things. It provides a lot of summaries of your GC performance, for example. Well, I think you hit on the on a huge thing, which is it's not you know log how your 
analysis tool wants you to log. That's yeah. why you use ETW because then Perfview can help you. Exactly. And it's not just Perfview. I mean, I think almost all of the analysis tools I've looked at in the last few years, they are all gravitating towards Perfview because that's yeah. what Win that's what Windows and .NET are doing now. I mean, one of the, the one of the exceptions I've got that I've used for years and years is using um, IIS Log Analyzer because IIS Logs, which are sort of traditional W3C logs, have a ton of information on them if you can look at multiple entries coherently. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's but again, you- it's the it was the analyzer that made the difference, not the log file. Right. Yep. You got to have an intelligent analyzer, and I think one of the downfalls of larger commercial projects. Or, or products is that they try to do too much and be too clever. Right. And so they have too much overhead. And, you know, if you have a large system, that overhead is going to, going to sink you. Yeah. And so the advantage of something like Perfue is it's very simple. It can open and it can analyze these log files in very concrete ways. Mm. And well, it's it always for- been the battle of profilers as I love yeah. the ability of a good profiling tool to sort out. Here's the method that's being called the most. And you're spending a little time on like, go optimize this, mm-hmm. but yeah. you alter the behavior of the app when you run the profiler. Yes. Yeah. That's a big deal. And so, I, you know, for that and so many reasons, I prefer profiles that are very minimal and it does require you to have a deeper knowledge of the system. Sure. And, and, but in my mind, that's a good thing because you will be able to understand the results of that profile so much better. Uh, another tool I use, um, and this one scares a lot of people away, but it really shouldn't, is just the Windows debugger, WinDBG. Mm-hmm. It has phenomenal tools uh, as part of the uh, SOS DLL that ships with .NET to analyze the managed heat, things that can't be done anywhere else. And if you can get used to that, that's a very powerful tool for analyzing your program. But it does take time to learn this. This is not a tool for the faint of heart. It's not, but I think it's more intimidating than it actually is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you, you need it, it certainly is ugly, especially if you're used to using something like Visual Studio for debugging. Right. Uh, it's going to be text only. But once you understand the fundamentals of how .NET works, and then you get a nice cheat sheet of commands, and that's how I started. Right. Just, yep. There's there's a great web page on MSDN that lists off here's all the SOS commands, and yeah, you have to learn the details of what is going on, but you can do that. And then that that's my go-to debugger. I think nine out of ten times. And three years ago, I would have been shocked to hear that coming out of my mouth. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to me? Yeah, right. I, I I think I got ribbed by one of my mentors in Bing. He kept ribbing me. He was like, "Man, when are you going to start using a man's debugger?" Oh <laughs> man! Like, oh, and you know, you can only hear that so many times before you, uh, you before you knuckle down and say, "Okay, I'm going to do this." And then you realize, like, "Oh, this isn't such a big deal." Can I bring this in another direction? You use this quote in your book: "Premature optimization is the root of all evil." Is it really? Is it always? No, no, that's attributed to Nuth, I think. But who's a uh, god? He, you are mocking is. a god. <laughs> I know you shall be struck down. <laughs> he is at, so he is absolutely one hundred percent right. As long as you're talking about these very nitty gritty line level optimizations, where you're trying to eke out the last, you know, point zero one percent of performance, right? Yeah. That's what he's talking about. Don't bother. Do, you know, it comes back to the if your algorithms stink, they're still going to stink after you do all these amazing optimizations. Your right. program's not, not going to be any better ultimately. But I think people sometimes take that statement a little too far. And so when they're designing or architecting a system, it's like, well, we don't have to make it performant. We can do that later. We'll just get something out there. And it's slow and it's bad, but it's okay because we just got to make it functional. Right. And that's a big mistake at that level. You have to understand the building blocks of what you're uh, of what you're relying on. Right. Before you start, because you could make some really big blunders. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of examples of that that I can think of. One of the things uh, coming back to dynamic code. You know, we knew we were going to have to use dynamic code in many situations where we were going to load code that was not built against, you know, the platform binaries. 
And so how do we execute dynamic code efficiently? There's a bunch of gotchas in there. And so we figured out how to get around a lot of those from the very beginning because that was a fundamental requirement of the system. We knew we were going to do it in .NET. We knew we were going to have this other requirement. So how do we do it and make it not be bad? And right. there's so many ways. You know, it comes down to, you know, if, if you're doing any kind of I.O., you've got to plan that out. If you, How much memory are you going to keep around? Right. Is your whole system going to be based on keeping four gigabytes of memory or of data in memory at all times, what you got to know that ahead of time because that affects how well the GC performs. What's the lifetime of all this? Do you need to have object pooling? Right. There's a lot of stuff. And if you make a, a big enough mistake at the beginning, you're not going to recover from that. Uh, one of the things that I tell other teams when I've spoken to them is it is impossible to build a high-performance server unless you take garbage collection into account from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. You have to understand what it's going to do and then pattern your code based on that. That's fair. Yep. You know, yeah. you, you have to take it both into account. Yeah. And yeah, it doesn't mean that you have to go through every class and say, well, this could be a little bit faster, you know, in this line, you know, you're using link here, but maybe link's not the best. Like, yeah, stuff like that you can replace later. But you know, you're but also it, getting into a very social element of criticizing people's code, mm, which I think yeah. gets one of the very challenging parts of performance is this idea that your code's crappy. It needs to be performance tuned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, w one of the big things I talk about in the book is uh, towards the end when I when it's a bit more talking about the social aspect is it, you need to make sure that you're worrying about the right things. You want everything to be driven by data, right? That's what it comes down to. If you you know if you're doing a code review and you see some bad code, but it's not really that important to the overall. Performance of the system. Don't get hung up on things like that. You know, concentrate on what really is important. The only way you know what's important is if you're doing constant measurement mm -hmm. at a very detailed level. You know, we shouldn't be making political decisions about performance. It should always Without be a doubt. Right. But yeah. I'm also more and more seeing. I get, I have tools, and I think EDW is one of these tools where. I can performance monitor in detail in production without a substantial overhead Absolutely. so that you're never having a debate about is that fast, is that slow? It's how does this run in the wild with the customer? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you should not, <laughs> you should never have a debate about this kind of stuff. If it can't be backed up by memory, just move on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, somebody get some data first. And, yeah, and, and real and real data like real data yes you can run simulation you're blue in the face i can't tell you how many load tests i've lied to myself with <laughs> yeah you know where you've just duped yourself you write a crappy load test you do opto crappy optimization um are there any tips go-to tips that we can you know rattle off before the end of the show that we haven't talked about you know things that that uh are more common or maybe not so common yeah, I, I can give you a couple random ones. Sure. Uh, the uh, I think the most important rule for memory allocation is memory has to disappear in the first garbage collection that comes along, that's a Gen Zero collection, or it has to live forever for the life of your process. <laughs> huh. That's the rule. And that is how the that's how the garbage collector works. That those are the assumptions. That either memory is either very ephemeral and disappears immediately or it lives forever. That's how you get great performance out of the garbage collector. And that's the basic definition between maintaining state and not. Yeah. Hmm. You know, you can't afford to maintain a lot of state unless you can maintain it forever. Just right. log it, move on. Yeah, if it's, if it's important enough to keep for even a moment, you might as well keep it forever. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, that leads to some pooling and, and other tricks that you might have to do. But uh, that that's the most important rule. Other thing is, uh, you know, CPU-wise, just go... Uh, one of, this is one of my favorite things to point out to people is, you know, don't make any assumptions about the .NET framework and its performance. Take a look at uh, enum .toString mm -hmm. and uh, is defined and has flag. Those yeah. are very simple things. You kind, you know, has flag especially. You would think it was little more than an and check. You know, does this flag exist in this other integer? It's actually a lot more than that. So don't make assumptions about how simple an API might be. It might be doing a lot more than you think. 
Right. Yeah, it begs the question, is there like a, a, a performance chart somewhere that says <laughs> how long each of these things takes? Yeah, you know? I, well, you know, it's all, all based on context, whether it's important or not, you know. And, you know, in, in my particular code base, we had to ban use of enum.hasflag because we used it so much, but it was more expensive than we assumed, so we had to replace it with our own little method. There's lots of little things like that. Measure, measure, measure. That's that's what it comes down to. That's the mantra, huh? Work, work yeah. with the truth. Work with the truth, yeah. Don't and you can handle the truth. You can. <laughs> you, you absolutely can. If you don't handle the truth, the truth will handle you. <laughs> the truth will oh, handle yep. you, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 will, it will come find you, beat you over the head, and become a... A, a career moment. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks very much for joining us today, Ben. Thanks it was for a lot having of fun. me. Yeah, it yeah. was. Thanks, guys. This is great. And good luck. Uh, where can we get the book? So it's available in print and ebook. Uh, all the usual suspects: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Google Play, iTunes, and other places for the ebook. Um, yeah, I, there's also a website. If you want to get a PDF uh, or an EPUB, like if you're in Europe or someplace and don't like any of the standard stores, you can go to writinghighperf.net. Ah. And uh, that has links to all the stores and a place to buy it directly there if you want. Awesome. Thanks again, Ben. It's been great. Thank you, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a